this morning. So if you have your Bible, please take it and turn to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four. We're taking a break from our series in Hebrews. And this morning we're gonna be talking about three qualities of a healthy church. Three qualities of a healthy church. It is a joy working with the Association of Churches in our area. I would say over the past couple of years, one of the things that has uh, driven most of my time in meeting with people and studying and uh, ministry has been on the topic of church health. And if I were to ask you, what do you think would define a healthy church, what would you say? What would be the defining characteristics of a church that looks healthy? When we ask that question, some people normally think, well, it's, it's about finances, right? If you have a lot of finances and you're able to do more ministry-related things, and so maybe finances are equal to church health. Maybe some people would say uh, the people. If there's a growing congregation, a growing number of people, normally that means that there's a church doing something right. Maybe that is a healthy church. And so are, are those things really defining characteristics of a healthy church? Some people would even say, well, it's all about the leadership. If you have a healthy leader, then you have a healthy church. But the idea of church health is, is probably, uh, when we look at what it means, uh, what we find in the Bible is that the Bible has the answer for what it means to be a healthy body of Christ. So if you were to go to the doctor and they were to run some tests, would they say that this is a healthy church? Now, I just wanna say that I praise God in being part of this church. Uh, I'm so thankful. I think that um, it's a joy to be here over the past uh, 20 years, since the year 2000. Uh, this church has been able to celebrate over 700 baptisms. And that's amazing to think about. Um, there's people who have come to know Christ through this church. There's people who have been discipled. There are leaders who have been developed. God has been faithful. Um, God has blessed this church financially. Uh, we're one of the top most giving churches to the Florida Baptist Convention, and that's something to celebrate and be excited for. Uh, God is using this church in this city in a great and mighty way to reach people for the name of Christ. Every Sunday, people gather all over this campus to study God's word together and to grow in their faith in community with other believers in connect groups. People are meeting all over their businesses and their homes and doing discipleship groups all throughout the week. God is blessing and using this church for his glory. Now, this church is not perfect, and no church is perfect. I've often heard that if a church is perfect, don't go into it because you'll make it unperfect. <laughs> But I wanna speak directly to the heart of our church this morning because I believe that we are at a pivotal moment in the life of our church. I believe that God wants to use us and continue using us for his glory in a great and mighty way. But if we want to do the things that God is calling us to do, then we must first be the church that God has called us to be. And when we think about church health and this topic this morning, I really wanna challenge us and encourage us to see that the church is the body of Christ. It's us, you who are sitting in the room today. You make up the body of Christ. And so the things that you are pursuing are the things that this church is pursuing as a whole. 
And so when we break open God's word and we read in Ephesians chapter four, verses one through 16, we're gonna read together what Paul says makes up a healthy church for the glory of God. And here's what he says in Ephesians chapter four, beginning in verse one. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, with patience, and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's skip down to verse 11, and he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together with every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you use this text this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would walk out of here, Lord, that we would be pursuing the right things as a church body, Lord, that we would be a people who are pursuing the things that you have defined and laid out for us and what it means to be a healthy people for your glory and for your name. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The three qualities of a healthy church as defined by the apostle Paul are these three things, love, unity, and maturity. And while finances and leadership and uh, people, a growing number of people, while all of those things are a part of church health as a whole, the Bible says that these things are what defines what a healthy church is, love, unity, and maturity. But what has happened in our culture today is that there's been such an overemphasis on the consumer mentality when it comes to churches all across America. And maybe a lot of the reasons why churches face issues and begin to decline is not a symptom of a performance issue, it's a symptom of an identity issue. Many churches have forgotten who they are in Christ. Every year in the Southern Baptist Convention, in our denomination, seven to 800 churches close their doors for good. That's an average of 17 churches every Sunday that will be meeting today for the last time in this nation. And while that statistic may seem staggering, it goes beyond the Southern Baptist Convention. Churches all across America and across denominations are closing their doors because they're unhealthy churches in every sense of the word. Maybe some people have experienced a conflict, Maybe there's been forced termination. Maybe there has been some disunity within the church. Maybe they've simply run out of finances. But for the most part, many churches have just lost touch of what their mission is and what their identity is as a body of Christ. 
But I'll say again that if we want to do the things that God has called us to do, we must be the church that God has called us to be. In order for us to understand the, the, the weight, the significance of what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter four, it would help if we put our feet into the shoes of this church. He is writing here to the church of Ephesus, and it would help if we understood their context because this is one of the few churches that we read about in the New Testament that we see the whole life cycle of the church from their very beginning as a church body when they were planted in AD 52 all the way until they had a near-death experience where the Bible says that Jesus almost took away their lampstand. We first read about this church, the church in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 18. So Paul comes into the city of Ephesus. He begins to do some early ministry there. He's with his fellow workers, Priscilla and Aquila, and together they disciple Apollos. And then Paul leaves them. He comes back in chapter 19, and when he comes back, he immediately meets 12 men who get saved and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when they do, God begins using these men for his glory in the city of Ephesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul spends just three years there. And during his tenure in this city, he is going everywhere and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is in the synagogues, he's teaching Jews about the kingdom of God. He goes into the, the, what the Bible says, the hall of Tyrannus in Acts chapter 19. And they are, doing, they are so active in spreading the gospel and sharing the word of God that the Bible says in Acts chapter 19 that all the residents of Asia, both Jew and Greek, heard the word of the Lord. Now, can you just imagine that, that the apostle Paul with his team is doing ministry in this city? What's also happening is that because there are people coming to know Christ, there are people who are putting death to their sins. They're burning their books of witchcraft in Acts chapter 19. There's a silversmith named Demetrius who makes a comment about how much the word of God is spreading among them. There's a riot that takes place. And then when we end in Acts chapter 20, when we end Paul's time in the city of Ephesus, he gives a farewell address to the pastors and leaders of that church. And while he's there, he says, while I was here these past three years, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word. What a ministry. In AD 52, this church in the city of Ephesus was a vibrant, growing, and dynamic church that was doing ministry in their community. Believers were being discipled. They, were, they even were sending out missionaries in their first three years. Leaders were being developed. Pastors and leaders were established. And then Paul gives his farewell. And the next time that we read about this church is 10 years later. And now the year is AD 62. And that's when Paul writes this letter. And for the first three chapters in the book of Ephesians, he spends time uh, reminding them of the gospel and reminding them of their identity in Christ. And we see it very, very early in chapter one. He said, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he says in verse three, who has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He explains who they were before Christ in Acts chapter two. He says that you were dead in your sins, and then verse four, that God made, made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
And so Paul is explaining to them the gospel. He's reminding them of their identity. And as a result of all of those things, he comes to chapter four and he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, there's something that has happened in these 10 years of the church's life. Because what we read about in chapters four, five, and six of this book is that Paul begins to address specific things that needed to be dealt with in the church. Apparently, there are some things that have happened where there's been some disunity. There's been some evidence of a lack of love towards one another. At the end of chapter four, he begins to call out specific sins like envy and wrath and sexual immorality and bitterness and anger. He begins to call out idleness. In chapter six, he talks to them about spiritual warfare and how to be aware of the devil's schemes. And so we know that there is something that has changed, some tides that have turned. We further get some more information in this church whenever the book of 1 Timothy opens up. Now, Timothy was also a leader in this early church. And Paul begins telling him how to deal with false teaching in the church. And then he begins to explain to him what qualifies a pastor or a leader. And so we see these things that are happening. Some, some warning signs are beginning to emerge. And then we don't hear about this church for 30 years. And now the year is AD 95. And this time, the church did not get a letter from Paul. This time the church did not get a letter from Timothy. But it gets a message from Jesus himself. And before Jesus took the apostle John on a journey to see a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, before, God, uh, before Jesus took the apostle John to see in the book of Revelation what would come at the end of times, Jesus had a message to give to the early churches. And in Revelation chapter two, this is what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil and have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. These are good things. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So Jesus here is, he's encouraging them. He's saying, you are doing ministry. You're calling out false teachers. You're trying to be discerning. But then he says this in verse four, but this I have against you you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What happened to this vibrant and active and growing church in the book of Acts? What happened to them in Ephesians was that Paul was calling out some warning signs because the church had begun to be disunified. They had stopped loving one another. There were some sins that were emerging out of the congregation. And so what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter four is not just a general instruction, it's a plea. It's, it's almost, a, the, your Bible might say, I beseech you in chapter four, verse one. And so with all these things in mind, I, I wonder, I wonder what would have happened if the church in Ephesians would have listened to the words of Paul given in this letter that he wrote to them. 
So the first of these healthy qualities that Paul addresses is love. The first quality of a healthy church is love. So in chapter four, verse one, Paul opens up and he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Look at that word, urge. Paul is saying this, I am pleading with you, I'm calling you, I'm begging you, I beseech you to walk worthy of this calling. Now that word in the Greek, the word uh, for urge, comes from the root, root word, which means draw near. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, everyone listen in, tune your ears to what I'm about to say, because this is extremely important. And then he urges them to walk a certain way. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Now, what is the calling that he's talking about? Well, the calling is the calling as a body of Christ, the calling to be the church, a group of Christ followers who glorify God and live to serve him. And the practice of what we do as a church must stem from our identity as a church. We are the church. And know that the Christian life is a calling. God has called you to this. Uh, Peter would say in 1 Peter that you, the church, are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for his own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. And so we have all been called into walking to a life that glorifies God. The Christian life and our involvement in the church is a calling given by God. Jesus has called us out of a life of sin and into a life of following him. And so the calling that God has placed on us as a church is a heavy and serious calling. And I think that we see that in the book of Revelation. When Christ is walking among the seven golden lampstands, what that means is that there's seven churches that he's addressing. And what we know from that is that this church belongs to Christ. These churches belong to Christ. He is the one who walks among the lampstands. And at any time, if we're not walking and doing the things that God is calling us to do, if we're not being the church God is calling us to be, the hand of God can be removed from the church. As the Bible says, the lampstand will be removed. And so we ought to be careful and cautious. There is a, there is a heaviness, a weightiness on this text to realize that this church serves an important role in the kingdom of God. And I would argue that every church does. And so who are we as a body of Christ? Because when Paul opens this up and he says, walk in a manner worthy of that calling, that word walk, it means this is how you conduct your life. How are you conducting your life for God's glory? We have to conduct our lives in a certain way because Christ has called us to live in a way that is distinct and separate from the rest of the world. He calls us to the practice of following him and counting the cost. He said that we must walk in a manner worthy of this calling. And if we wanna be a church who walks worthy of that supreme calling that we've been given, that we must pursue the following things together. The first mark that he talks about is love. Here in verse two, this is how you walk. With all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love. The way that he is explaining this speaks to both our purpose and our practice. Paul gives us an example of how to walk in this manner. He said, you walk with humility and gentleness, patience 
and bearing with one another in love. And these words that he's saying are actually descriptors for the word love. If I were to ask you a question, what do you think love is? Well, a lot of us would probably point to the famous passage of scripture where we understand what love is. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we hear it a lot in weddings, that love is patient, love is kind, and we see a definition for what love is. But did you know that when 1 Corinthians 13 is speaking of what love is, Paul again there is speaking to a church, to a body of Christ. Not that it also doesn't apply to marriage, but he's speaking to the church when he says that love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, and it is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Are we loving each other in the body of Christ in this way? The love that Paul talks about is the love that we find in Jesus alone. He is our model for what this love looks like. A couple of uh, months ago, several months ago now, we were in a series uh, studying Colossians chapter three uh, called Pursuing Intimacy with Christ. And in that, we went over Colossians chapter three, verses 12 through 14. So listen to how similar this sounds. This is explaining how we love in this way. The Bible says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The reason that Paul would explain these things is because we need help understanding what love actually looks like. I think in our culture today, we have a very skewed understanding of what love is. Love is not an affection or an emotional fleeting thing. It's an action, it's what we do, it's a verb. And so he explains these characteristics for the word love. He says that it's a humble love. It's your willingness to put others above yourself. You help encourage and lift one another up in the faith. And that can be very difficult to do in a, a me-centered generation. And, and he explains it as a gentle love. It doesn't tear anyone down. It, it builds one another up. Where we don't meet people with judgment or criticism, but we are offering a gentleness towards one another. A patient love, we're slowly and gently giving people, I think this is an unspoken spiritual gift, giving someone the benefit of the doubt. Sometimes being too trusting might have its, its pitfalls, but he's explaining a love here that is patient with people and also forbearance. So we'll just have a time of, of and I, I was thinking about you know, what to do with this, right? Because as a confession, I do not do all these things well. I think none of us uh, are perfect in any of these things. And so here's what we'll do. I'm gonna make a confession to you, okay? I'm gonna make a confession, and if you uh, make the same confession, you just respond by saying, me too, okay? All right. Sometimes I can be selfish. I'm sure glad you said something. That would have been awkward. Sometimes I can be impatient with people. Sometimes I fail to bear with one another in love. 
So we just admit this morning that we ought to love one another in a way that honors God. And by the way, Christ gave himself up for the church. He laid down his life for the church. If he did that to show his love, then we ought to lay down our own personal wants, desires, and opinions to love one another in the body of Christ. Because even in a larger church setting, one of the things that makes us feel like the family of God is by the way that we love one another. The Bible says in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Hold on. Did you know that by the way that you love each other in the body of Christ, it will show the world that you're an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. So we ask the question, if the world could see your heart towards another brother or sister in the faith, would they come away with that conclusion? If the world could listen in on a closed door conversation in which you may be talking about your disdain towards another brother or sister in the faith, would they come away with that conclusion? Would they still say, that person is an authentic follower of Jesus. Loving each other is easier said than done, but it's something that we must pursue together. I have both heard of and seen specific churches who have almost become completely torn apart because of a failure to love one another. And here's what that tells me. If I can't love others who are in the same church family as me, I'm at risk for leading others astray and disrupting the body of Christ. So this is one mark of a healthy church that Paul gives. A second mark that he gives is unity, unity. Verse three, Paul says here that the church should be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, Paul is not just simply saying, um, just stay unified, y'all, ignore any, any drama that exists. No, he is actually talking about what it means to be unified. First, he addresses the heart behind unity. He says that we are to be eager, eager, the Bible says, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Remember, this is not about what we are doing. This is about who we are. Are we eager to pursue unity with one another? Then he tells us about the commitment of unity. He calls it the bond of peace. What does this mean? What does it mean that we are to eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That word in the Greek means it's, it's attachments of a ligament. It's a whole, the whole structure is joined together by what? By peace that we have through Jesus Christ. The, the reason that we are able to be unified on mission together is because you and I have all one thing in common. We have all tasted and seen the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. We have all had peace with God through Jesus Christ if you have been born again. And so if you've been born again, that belongs to you. That's a strong word there. He calls it a bond of peace, and it's because of our commonality. We have all been given peace with God through Jesus Christ. But then he tells us about the object of our unity. What is it that binds us together? Verse four, here's what he says. And count how many times he says the word one. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
and one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. He's saying the word one. We are one as a body of Christ. So we cannot be disunified and divided when we are one people. When we continue the efforts of the Great Commission, we cannot be divided in who we are. So Paul encourages us and challenges us to stay unified and be eager to maintain that unity. And just like a lack of love, the same thing has happened with churches who have been torn apart because of disunity. A lot of people have, uh, when they're talking about a church that has gone through a church split, I've heard this statement a lot. I've heard people say, well, you know, the devil just got into that church and he caused a whole bunch of fighting and, and arguing. Well, Satan does attack and we are to be aware of his schemes. And two chapters later, Paul tells us about that. But how does he do it? How does he attack a church? It's through the pride of a man's heart. It's through an unbridled tongue. It's through the wrongful actions of a man. So yes, Satan loves disunity, and he may be the instigator of it, but man carries it out. We are told to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. So we cannot simply blame disunity on Satan when we have a part to play in being eager to maintain that unity. Now, by the way, when I'm talking about these things, I'm not saying that I, I look over at the church and I'm just seeing a whole lot of people who are torn apart. And I'm just simply saying these things as a reminder of who we are in Christ and that if those things do exist, we are to put them to death. We are to put disunity to the, bet, to, to the death. And unity is not the same as uniformity. But we're not always gonna agree on everything. And in a church this size, we might not always be on the same page. But the evidence of unity is when you can disagree with someone and still do ministry alongside of one another. Unity means that on the things that are important, we strive to work with one another. And it's because of the common confession that we have one body, one spirit, one hope. Now, there are a few things that cause disunity and harm and destruction in the church. One of those things is the tongue. We also see actions of man and the pride of a man's heart. I remember a few years ago, uh, sorry, not just a few years ago, this is when I was 12 years old and I was sixth grade, so several years ago. Um, I was uh, with my friend and we were working on his grandpa's farm and we had one job. We were supposed to be packing down the cotton in the big cotton trailer. Y'all seen those big old cotton trailers? You gotta pack them down to create more space so that you can continue the crop. And what we were just doing, we were playing. We were told to pack that, that trailer down, but we were just playing with one another. And we, we had built a, a fort. We had built a little tunnel through the bottom of the cotton trailer, and we had made a little hole for ourselves where we could kind of hang out, and it was just a cool thing. Well, my friend decides that he's gonna empty his pockets, and when he empties his pockets, he finds a little lighter that he found out into the field. And so he starts flicking it, not thinking that it was working, and all of a sudden, a piece, of fi a piece of cotton lit on fire, and before we knew it, in the bottom of this trailer, there were swarms of fire all around us. And we were looking for the ladder, we were crawling out in the fire. By the time that we finally got to the ladder, I had no eyebrows, my hair was singed back, I had first and second degree burns all over my body, had to spend eight months in the burn center in Augusta, Georgia, just to be treated. He had burns on his feet so bad he could hardly walk. And when we think about one piece of fire that was lit on 
uh, one piece of cotton that was lit on fire that caused this massive destruction. Do you know what James says about the tongue? He says, how quickly a forest is set ablaze by one small fire. And then he says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. James would say that every kind of creature on this earth, every reptile, bird, animal, sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. So we have to say this. How can we tame our tongue if the Bible says that no human being can tame the tongue? Well, we need God's help to do it. We need God's help to help us tame our tongue. And so because of these things, bitterness exists, anger exists, slander exists, gossip exists. And all of these things, if we're not careful, can cause disunity in the body of Christ. What's interesting is that James, in the very next chapter, in James chapter four, he returns to the same thing. He says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers, because there is one lawgiver and one judge. And so what James is saying is this. He says, if you are proclaiming evil on someone, if you're casting evil on someone by the words that you say, he says there's one lawmaker and one judge. What you're doing is you're actually putting yourself in the place of God. And he said there's only room on God's throne for one. And so James would say this. He says, what are we to do? We are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God the Bible says this too in James chapter four, because the, the actions of our hands can cause disunity, the pride of our heart can cause disunity. What James says in James 4, 8, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And then he says, whoever would humble himself or whoever exalts himself will be humble, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so what are we to do? We are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, 1 Timothy 4, 7. Now, we are to put those things in practice. We are to discipline our tongue, our actions, what we do, what we say, because we wanna be a people here who seek to glorify God above all other things. Now, this does not mean bridling your tongue. This does not mean that if evil exists or sin exists, that you just keep quiet about it. Bridling your tongue is, does not mean that you keep quiet about sin. It means that you know how to control it. We don't keep quiet about sin. This is something I think that the church needs to hear as a whole. If sin does exist, if someone has sinned against you in the faith, the Bible tells us what we are to do if someone sins against you. The Bible says to go to that person, to go to that person, and then it says that if the person listens to you, you have won your brother. You have won your sister if you do that. And so when we think about unity in the church, when we think about what God is calling us to do and how God is calling us to live, we must understand that every person in the room here has a part to play. In the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus, says, Jesus prays that they may all be in one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, listen to this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the church gives evidence to Jesus Christ. How does this prove Jesus exists? If it weren't for Jesus, we wouldn't stay unified. If it weren't for Jesus, the pride in our heart would cause us to sin against one another. 
But because of Jesus, we can live in unity with one another. We can love each other well. And the third mark of a healthy church that he talks about here is maturity. And we talked about this a lot last week. In fact, the whole uh, topic of the sermon last week was on maturity in the faith. And if you have um, if you were not able to be here last week, I encourage you to go listen to the service online. In verse 12, he, he talks about the focus of this mature, maturity. What's happening if we are a people who are mature in the faith? Well, verse 12 says that the saints are doing the work of ministry if we're mature in the faith. And also, the body of Christ is being built up if we are mature in the faith. In verse 13, he, he explains the goal. How long, church, how long should we be pursuing love and unity and maturity? How long? Verse 13. Until we all attain the unity of faith and of knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. That's how long. We do it until we're perfect like Christ. And guess what? We won't get there until Christ takes us home one day. And so the Bible says that as often as we are living and breathing and coming and gathering to church together, as long as we are doing life together, we are to be pursuing love, unity, maturity. The goal, the end goal, is the stature of the fullness of Christ. But what's the evidence? What's the evidence of a mature believer? There's just so much here, and I don't have time to go through it all, but look in verse 14. Here's the evidence that someone is mature in the faith so that we would no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. So here is the evidence that we're no longer children. We're growing up in the faith. We're not tossed about by every wind of doctrine that comes our way. We know what we believe and we know why we believe it. We have an unshaken faith and that's the evidence of a mature believer. You have built your foundation on the rock of Jesus Christ. You have held fast to the anchor of your soul, Hebrews tells us. That's how we know that a person is mature in the faith because you're not wish-washy in every wind of doctrine that comes your way. You know what you believe and why you believe it. You're also not distracted by what the Bible calls here human cunning. That is, people who, who seek to come around you and give you false teaching, who try to sway you in one direction or another. No, the evidence of a mature believer is that you know what you believe, but you're also not distracted by the craftiness of deceitful schemes. The Bible tells us a couple chapters here later that we are to be aware of the schemes of the devil. In chapter six, there is spiritual warfare and it does exist. And if you are not mature in the faith, it'll be very easy for you to get off course and not steadfast in the faith. And so the evidence there is that we would be a people who are mature in the faith. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says it this way. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And so if Jesus explained the, the steadfastness of a, of a body, a people, divided against itself, it won't stand. But together, there is strength in that, the outcome of our maturity. What, what, is, what, it, what does it produce? Here's what it produces. A loving 
and unified and healthy church for the glory of God. So look with me here in verse 15 and 16. And Paul, he ties everything together right here. He says in verse 15, rather in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the one uh, passage of scripture in the Bible where we're actually told how to grow a church. <laughs> how to grow a church. And there are many church growth strategies that exist today. There are all kinds of, of um, uh, books and resources that talk about how to make a church structurally healthy. But here's what Paul explains it. He says that a church is growing when it's building itself up in love when it builds itself up in love. He ties everything back together and he explains to them that we are the body of Christ. We are one body and many parts and everyone in the room today has a part to play in that. We must be pursuing these things together and if we do, we'll be a healthy church for God's glory. Maybe you're here this morning and, you're, and something that I've said has just convicted you or challenged you. Let me ask you this. How are we doing in the pursuit of love? How are we doing in the pursuit of unity as a body? How are we doing in the pursuit of maturity as a body of Christ? Is there any anger or bitter, bitterness or rivalry or contention that exists between you or another brother or sister in Christ? Do you know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five? He says, if you go up to the altar and you're ready to lay down your offering, and there in your heart you remember that there's contention against you and a brother or sister in the faith, Jesus says, go and make things right. Leave your offering there at the altar. Go make things right with your brother or sister, and then come and put down your offering. Are we doing that? Are we eager to maintain unity? Here's the invitation. Jesus says this, let us, let us be unified and loving towards one another. Matthew 5, 23. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus is telling us today that our worship is affected by unresolved anger in our hearts. So I challenge you, I encourage you to make things right with a brother or sister. Go out of your way to be unified in the faith. Seek every opportunity when you come and gather here together to love one another well, to love one another with a humble love, a gentle love, a patient love, and bearing with one another in that love. Philippians chapter one, verse 27. I'll read this and then I'll land the plane. The Bible says in Philippians 1, 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Would that be said of our church? Can that be said of our church? Believe it can, but we must be striving together. We must be doing our part and working together in that way. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes as we enter to a time of, a time of response, a time of invitation. 
And if you're here today and you've never tasted and seen the goodness of God, you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, I wanna invite you today to come and give your life to him. By the way, I will say this, that love and unity and these things are not possible if we didn't have Jesus Christ living in us, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit working through us. So if you're here today, you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, I invite you to come today. If you're here today and you have bitterness or anger or anything in your heart that caused disunity in the body, I, I challenge you, I encourage you today to make things right with a brother or sister. Go out of your way to seek them out, to love one another with a gentle love, a humble love. I pray that today would be a day where God would convict us of sin and lead us to righteousness. So Father, I wanna come to you right now in the precious name of Jesus, and I wanna thank you, God. I wanna thank you for your word that explains to us, that tells us how to be a healthy church. Father, I just pray that in this time as we, that you just bring things to mind, Lord, that you convict hearts, that you challenge us. Lord, that we would do it as David said, Lord, search me and try me, know my thoughts. Look at my heart, oh God. Father, I pray that you would lead me in a way that I would be a brother or sister in this body who would be more loving, more unified, and more mature than when I came in. And it's in Christ's name that we do pray, amen.